Amidst the wreckage of sin and corruption, there shines a beacon of hope, a testament to the boundless depth of God's grace and His mercy. Jonathan Edwards was born in 1703. He was, re- he was raised in a devout Christian family with a father who was a minister. Edwards was extremely intelligent. He excelled academically and he attended Yale College at the age of 13, where he studied theology and philosophy. However, his pursuits of knowledge and morality didn't necessarily mean that he knew God, that he had a connection, as you would say, with the divine. Despite his external adherence to religious duties, Edwards later reflected on his pre-conversion state as lacking a genuine and heartfelt connection with God. Edwards' religious views were rational, cognitive, focusing on knowledge and morality. And his approach to the faith was disciplined and methodical, striving to align his life with Christian principles. He had not yet experienced heart change, which would later characterize his relationship and define his relationship with Christ. At the age of 17, God extended his mercy and his grace to Jonathan Edwards, radically transformed his life. And as we study God's word this morning, may you too be transformed by catching a glimpse of God's mercy and grace extended to you as well. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 20 through 24, Moses describes three actions of God, three actions of God, so that you will have an unshakable confidence in God's mercy and grace. Three actions of God, so that you will have an unshakable confidence in God's mercy and grace. Please, if you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 3, and I'll be reading verses 20 through 24. Genesis chapter 3, reading from verse 20 through to the end of the chapter. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. Then Yahweh and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So reads God's holy word. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 19, we witness the tragic account of humanity's fall into sin. It began with the serpent who deceived the woman by questioning God's command and enticing her to eat from this forbidden fruit, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve succumbs to the temptation, and she eats of the fruit, and then she offers it to her husband, Adam, and he eats as well. And as a result, their eyes are opened, and now they become aware of their nakedness, which leads to shame and an attempt to hide from the presence of Yahweh. The consequences of their sin is severe. The serpent is cursed to crawl on its belly, eating dust. An enmity is established between the serpent and humanity. 
and the woman is subjected to pain in childbirth, and now strife is introduced between her relationship with her husband. And to Adam, God declares a curse upon the ground. He will toil in labor for his sustenance. And yet, even in the midst of judgment, God offers a glimpse of hope. He promises a future offspring of the woman who will crush the serpent's head, foreshadowing the eventual victory over sin and death. And this brings us then to the final scene of the garden account, the final scene of the fall. Genesis chapter 3, verse 20 through 24. And in this passage of Scripture, Moses describes three actions of God so that you will have an unshakable confidence in God's mercy and God's grace. Following this lengthy pronouncement of judgment, we see two events occur which signal this continued hope. The first event is Adam's naming of his wife, Eve, in verse 20. And the second is God's provision of animal skins in verse 21. So let's begin with the first action of God, which we see. And this is God's promise. God's promise in verse 20. God's promise. Verse 20 says, Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. We're so used to speaking about Adam and Eve that we generally fail to notice that not once in the Genesis, Genesis account, not once in this creation and fall account, is the name Eve even mentioned up until now, where Adam calls his wife Eve. She's been called a female in Genesis 1 verse 27. She was referred to as a suitable helper for Adam in Genesis 2 verse 18. She was called a woman in Genesis 2 verses 22 and 23. A wife in Genesis 2 verse 24, 25 and Genesis 3 verse 8. But all those descriptive or gen- those are generic terms. They're not a name. We don't find the name Eve up until this point in Scripture. The name Hava in Hebrew means living, traditionally translated as Eve. The Greek translation for the noun Zoe is the name for life. Adam, Adam explains that she will be named Eve, because she is the mother of all the living. All human life will find their source in her. Even though Adam and Eve had sinned and disobeyed God, Yahweh God's original command that the man and his wife would multiply and subdue and have dominion of the earth, that still remains. They were to multiply, they were to be fruitful. That hasn't been withdrawn because of the fall. And not only will Eve be a mother for posterity, Adam naming his wife the mother of all living, this was an expression of faith, an act of faith. He was expressing his hope, his confidence in God's promise that we saw in verse 15. 
Adam had learned, albeit through the most calamitous of lessons, to accept God's word with faithful obedience. Adam's example of obedience, learned through the sobering consequences of his disobedience, should be an encouragement to us that when we mess up because of sin, we shouldn't continue in the downward spiral of sin, but rather we should repent and turn to God, turn to Him for forgiveness and restoration of that fellowship with Him. He has promised to work all things, even our sin, for our good and for His glory. And He forgives and He brings healing and restoration. So when you sin, don't attempt to hide from God and His people and His church, but rather turn to Him like the prodigal son. And you can expect to find mercy and grace in Him. True repentance leads to a growing faith, a growing love, and a growing dependence upon God. And just as Adam's faith pointed to a future promise, we can rejoice that we are recipients of this promise. Our salvation through Christ, our salvation through this promised seed. We look back to the work of Christ, just as Adam looked ahead. However, pray that the Lord will indeed use consequences in your life as an object lesson, so as to help you to hate sin, to strengthen your faith, to resist the allurement of this world. Be intentional in allowing God's Word to renew your mind and make it your ambition to be pleasing to Him. Like Adam, we are to persevere in our faith, and in our faith specifically in God's promise, remembering that this battle will soon be over, and we will be in the presence of the Lord where there is fullness of joy forevermore. But God doesn't only promise salvation, He also provides the means through which we are saved. And this leads us to the second action of Yahweh God. The second action of God is God's provision, which we read about in verse 21. God's provision. Moses records in verse 21, Then Yahweh God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Following Adam's act of faith, Yahweh God immediately acts on behalf of this couple by providing an adequate protection, a covering for their embarrassment, and a covering that would preserve and protect them as they enter into the hostile environment which they will be banished to, out of the garden. And just as Adam renames his spouse, so too Yahweh reclothes this couple. Isha, woman, gives way to Hava, Eve, mother of all the living. And their rudimentary clothing, their fig leaves that have been stitched together, gives way to the divinely provided leather tunics. And both these actions provide hope. But they also serve as a remembrance. James, he takes this monopoly money down to First National Bank and says to the teller, I would like to open up an account at your bank. Very good, the teller says. How much would you like to deposit? 
472,984 rand. And then he pushes this monopoly money across the counter. If that ever happened, I'm pretty sure the teller would call security to escort that person out. Monopoly money serves well in the game of monopoly, but it has no value in the real world. And in the same way, although our good works may be commended by others, by other men and women, they are not sufficient to gain an acceptance before a holy God. In the second half of Romans chapter 2, Paul discusses another type of person, a religious person. First the moralist and now the religious person. And the religious person's confidence is in his carefully performed religious duties. I keep the law, he would say. I have been baptized, confirmed. I teach Sunday school. I serve on the church boards. I pay my tithes. God says, these are fig leaves too. No less than the pagans' good works. But why, some might ask, aren't the sacraments, the Christian education, tithing service, aren't they good? Yes, they are good. Later in Romans Paul says that the most religious person of his day, the Jew, as an example, he says, theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the ancestry of Jesus Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. And Paul states that, There are great advantages in these outward forms of true religion, primarily if they were to lead us to Christ. But they are useless so far as our standing before God is concerned, because they do nothing for the heart, the state of the heart. But some say, I've worked hard at self-reformation. I used to be a drunkard, and I shook that habit of drinking. And I have a good job. Fig leaves, says God. But I read my Bible every day. I go to church twice on a Sunday. I always try and say hello to the person sitting in the pew beside me. Fig leaves, says God. But I give to the hunger fund. Fig leaves. I give blood. Fig leaves. I, I, fig leaves. These are all fig leaves. None of them deal adequately with our sin. And notice the I, the I, the I, the dependence upon self. In 1721, at the age of 17, Jonathan Edwards' life was radically transformed. And he describes his conversion as a sudden, overwhelming awakening to God's presence and his guilt before him. Edward's encounter with God's holiness and his unworthiness led him to a strong conviction of sin and a profound sense of spiritual despair. And during a period of intense introspection, Edward's realized that salvation was not earned through human efforts or good works, but rather through faith in Christ alone. His life was transformed from superficial religion to a genuine grasp of gospel grace, which ignited a passionate love for Christ 
and a desire to live in accordance with His truth. We cannot self-atone. God must provide the covering, for only God is able to deal with our sin problem. The text says that Yahweh God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Now, the text doesn't specify what animals God killed to get the skin, which he used to clothe Adam and Eve. But I tend to think, although I may be wrong, I tend to think that the animals that God most likely used were lambs. This animal sacrifice, of course, is to point us to Christ, to Jesus, as our only sufficient Savior. And the animal skins that clothe them is to point us to Jesus' righteousness, which clothes us. Jesus is pictured as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. During the period before Jesus' coming, when this promise was shared and passed on from generation to generation, this promise, in the words of Scripture, were preserved upon skins. And they were generally lambskins, which were carefully prepared and sewn together to make large rolled out writings known as scrolls. So I think it's reasonable to suppose that God killed lambs to clothe our first parents. But whatever the case, we know that God killed animals. He made garments from their skins. And then he clothed Adam and Eve after taking the inadequate fig leaf clothing from them. And in order for Adam and Eve to be clothed in the skins of animals, animals had to die. And in a similar way, in order for us to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, with the skins symbolizing that righteousness, Jesus had to die. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Hebrews 9 verse 22. It was necessary for the innocent one to die so that the guilty might go free. Adam and Eve had been warned that they were not to eat from this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, lest they would face the death penalty. Yahweh God said, you're free to eat of any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Genesis 2, verse 16 and 17. And yet up until this point in Genesis 3, no one had died. Yes, Adam and Eve had sinned, and they probably expected to die. When God came in the garden, they must have been shivering at the prospect of this judgment. But they didn't die physically, but they did die spiritually. And this is seen in their attempt to hide away from the presence of God. In fact, not even the serpent died. Up until this point, there was no death at all. And now that the death that does occur, the death is of an innocent animal who doesn't deserve to die, who died on behalf of Adam and Eve. And the one who kills these animals was God. There was probably two thoughts that were going through Adam and Eve's minds. Firstly, the instinctive horror of death. So this is what death is. They'd never seen it. This is what death is. 
they would have exclaimed as they look at the horror of these bodies of these slain animals before them. How horrible. And in that instant, it must have dawned on them that if death is the result of sin, if the wages of sin is death, then sin is far worse than they had ever, ever imagined. And they're probably determined, if possible, to refuse to sin, to live in obedience to God. The second thought that must have crossed their minds, together with this awareness of sin's horror, must have been a deep growing wonder at God's mercy. The mercy of God, who though had every reason to put them to death, to take their lives for forfeiting, for breaking His command, who said that death must follow sin, was nevertheless pointing to the fact that these animals, the, these innocent victims would die in their stead as their substitutes. It was possible for one animal, an innocent substitute, to die on behalf of one sinning individual. One animal for Eve and one animal for Adam. Later in Jewish history, at the time of the exodus from Egypt, Yahweh commanded that each Jewish family take a lamb into their home, examine it for a period of three days, and then kill it, and spread its blood on the doorposts the, and the lintels of their homes as a sign so that the angel of death would pass over and not slay the firstborn of the household. But every household which was not covered with the blood of this lamb, their firstborn was slain. This was the Passover. And the symbolism was now broad, broadened to illustrate how one animal could die as a substitute for one family. A while later, when God gives the law, he, instructed, he gave instructions for the Day of Atonement, on which the high priest was to kill an animal on behalf of the nation of Israel, and then sprinkle its blood over the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant, which is within the Holy of Holies in the Jewish temple, the, the tabernacle. Now it's one animal for one nation. And at last, the day came when John the Baptist, standing beside the Jordan and for the benefit of his disciples, declared, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. One substitute for one individual, broadened to one substitute for one family, then one substitute for a nation, and now with Christ, one ultimate substitute for the world. Indeed, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And especially the last verse. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before his throne. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Don't delay. Our Lord told a story of a king's feast. And a man came into this king's feast without a wedding garment. He said, 
when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Matthew 22 verses 11 through 14. Actually, all are invited. The question is, are you among the chosen? Are you clothed with the righteousness of Christ? As we consider these questions, let us remember that God's invitation of salvation extends to all who believe. All who would repent of their sins and place their faith in the work of Jesus Christ. As you reflect upon God's unmerited favor, may I encourage you to give thanks to rejoice in the truth that you are chosen not because of anything that you have done, but solely because of His love, His grace, and His mercy. Our righteousness is not found in our own striving, but in the perfect righteousness of Christ. Our self-attempts at atonement and works-based righteousness fall woefully short. It is Christ's sacrificial death. His triumphant resurrection that secures our forgiveness and our righteousness. There is salvation found in no other name and by no other means. So please, let go of burdens, the burdens of self-effort, and trust fully in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Anchor your faith in His perfect life, in His sacrificial death, and in His victorious resurrection. Trust that Christ's righteous life and His work on the cross is sufficient to atone for your sins. But don't forget that sin has consequences. Adam and Eve, their sin brought the consequences that we are experiencing even today. As they sinned, sin spread to all men, and so death spread to the entire human race. And this leads us to our third and final action of God. The third action of God that we see in our passage is God's punishment. God's punishment, which we read about in verse 22 through 24. God's punishment. Moses says from verse 22, Then Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become to know good and evil. And now, lest he send forth his hand and take also from the tree of life and and live forever. Therefore Yahweh God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Rather than experiencing bliss, they now encounter misery. Rather than sitting upon a throne, they are expelled from the garden. Rather than new prerogatives, they experience a reversal. 
They not only fail to gain something that they didn't have, the irony is they lose what they unhindered fellowship with God. Perfect fellowship with Yahweh God. They found nothing and they lost everything. Initially, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil were presented together. And in this final scene of the garden account, they are the focal point again. The tree of knowledge represents the command of Yahweh God, which was to be obeyed. And if the couple chose to comply, then the tree of In Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, the Trinity discusses the creation of man. But here, in Genesis chapter 3 verse 22, the Trinity is discussing cutting man off from the source of rejuvenating life. Cutting man off from the tree of life, this homeless couple. It's in him that they will find refuge. Garas is often used to refer to driving out the wicked nations as Israel came and possessed the promised land. And of course, these two verbs are in juxtaposition, shalah and garas, which reinforce the idea that man is not leaving the garden of his own will, nor is he gently escorted to the, the entrance of the garden. No, he is thrown out. Intimacy with God is replaced with alienation from God. Sin separates us from God. And we see stationed at the entrance of the eastern entrance of the garden. It was guarded by cherubim who are known in the Old Testament as winged beings who surround the presence of Yahweh. Golden images of cherubim formed the covering of the sacred ark formed the decoration on the curtains that closed off the Holy of Holies. Carved cherubim also adorned Solomon's temple and dominated the most holy place. And accompanying these cherubim is this flaming sword which turned in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Perhaps the sword indicating the judgment of God. The cherubim are placed at the east entrance to the garden to guard it against intruders. And what a pitiful irony. We saw how Adam was originally commissioned to care for, to samar, to guard, to keep the garden. And now he is guarded from it. The cherubim function much like the later Levites who are posted as guards around the tabernacle, and they were to strike down any person who would encroach upon the forbidden sacra, sancta. The cherubim are placed, sakan. And the word sakan, placed, is from the word tabernacle, miskan. That's where it's derived from. Yahweh God is often described as tabernacling among His people. And the cherubim are closely associated with his presence, cutting man and, and woman off from his presence. And this is the imagery that is used to depict this excommunication of the man and the woman from the garden, from Yahweh's presence. Man leaves the garden and the opening behind him is barred shut. Paradise has been lost. 
sin is in the world because of Adam's sin, and death is in the world because of sin. Romans 5 verse 12. And verse 19 says that many have been made sinners by the disobedience of this one man. However, not all is lost. Since God initiates for Israel a new way into His presence, but it's a costly way. A costly price of innocent blood. In spite of man's inability to obtain life through accessing the tree of life in the garden, the tabernacle revealed that Sinai enabled Israel to live with God, though imperfectly they could dwell in the presence of God without being consumed by His holiness. However, this is only a foreshadow to the perfect and final way to enter into the presence of Yahweh, and that is through Christ. The overarching emphasis of Romans 5 is not upon sin and how sin is spread to all, although that is Christ has done, has had a bearing upon how God views believers. And He views them so in His conversion. Jonathan Edwards' life was changed drastically. He continued his studies and later became a pastor and a preacher in Northampton, Massachusetts. His preaching was intellectually rigorous and emotionally powerful, often leaving his listeners convicted or converted. One of Edward's most well-known sermons, titled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, played a significant role in the Great Awakening, a revival movement that swept through the American colonies in the 18th century. His emphasis is on the sovereignty of God and on the realities of sin and the urgency of repentance, which deeply influenced the revival's spiritual impact. And despite facing challenges and controversies, and he faced many, Edwards remained steadfast. He remained devoted to Christ and devoted to his ministry. Later, he served as a missionary to the Native American tribes, spreading the gospel until he died at a young age of 54 years old in 1758. A short life but a life that bore much fruit for Christ and a life which testified to the mercy and the grace of God. Let's pray. O oh God, we are humbled by the depths of your mercy and your grace towards us, wretched sinners. We stand in awe of your unchanging love for us. We thank you, Lord, for the assurance that we find in your promises. And just as Adam expressed faith in your promise, your promise of redemption by naming his wife Eve, the mother of all the living, we too find hope in the promise of salvation in Christ. We know that Christ has accomplished our forgiveness. We have received mercy and love and grace from you. And we know when the lake of fire is created and the serpent is finally cast into that lake, it's delivering that lethal blow to the serpent's head, crushing him and granting eternal life forevermore with you to the saints, those who have placed their faith in you. Lord, we remember that your promises are steadfast and true, and we place our unshakable confidence 
in what you have declared and in your perfect character, you are a faithful God. And we are grateful, Lord, for your provision of atonement. In the face of Adam and Eve's attempts to self-atone through their own works, you provided a sacrificial covering which foreshadowed the ultimate covering, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And your grace is our hope for salvation. And we humbly accept your provision of atonement through the blood of Jesus. And as we reflect upon the consequences of sin and your righteous judgment, we recognize the weight of your judgment. We understand that sin hinders our relationship with you, and it separates many from your presence. It invites your righteous discipline. Lord, we certainly don't deserve paradise, and yet in your mercy and your grace, you have promised not only to save us, but even to restore these Edenic conditions. But as we leave this place this morning, we pray that your truth would take root within our hearts and transform our lives, that we would walk with confidence of your promises, confidence in your promises, relying upon your grace alone for our salvation. Help us, Lord, to embrace the provision of atonement through Christ and to live in the realities of his sacrifice every day. May your truth resonate within us, shaping our thoughts and our actions and our attitudes. And may your name be glorified in all that we do. In the mighty name of Christ, Jesus Christ, our Redeemer and Lord, we pray these things. Amen.